This is the Bigger Pockets Podcast Show 550. My preference right now is with all the overhead that I do, I'll continue to flip however many houses are necessary to feed my rental addiction. And I want to buy, stabilize, and hold stuff while debt is low, replacement costs are irrationally high, and the rents are high. What's going on, everyone? It's Brandon Turner, host of the Bigger Pockets Podcast, the show where we believe real estate investing is the greatest path towards financial independence and wealth and freedom ever known to mankind. Here with my co-host, Mr. David Green. David, what's up, man? Awesome to uh, have you once again on the show. How you doing? Yeah, and I, we were just blessed with a little cameo of Josh Dorkin poking his head yeah. into the shot there. Looks like he came over to use your pool. <laughs> he was. He uh, So, he, yes, Josh uh, is actually sitting right outside my office right now. What's up, Josh? Because... He says, hey, what's up, everyone? Because next, the next episode that comes out, this is not episode five. This is actually 550, but 551. Here's Josh. Come on over, Josh. What up, people? There we go. So Josh and I and David are going to be recording episode 551 right when this gets over. So yes, you heard it here first that Josh Dorkin will be uh, making a guest appearance on the next episode, but not today. So, but first, let's talk about today's show. Today, we've got an amazing interview with a good friend of David and I. His name is Tommy Christie. Tommy's been one of those guys that is super humble, and you talk to him, and he's like, oh, yeah, you know, I do real estate. And then you find out he buys hundreds of properties and has bought thousands of properties over his life, and he just kills it. So we talked today about scaling, what it takes to beat hedge funds at their own game, because uh, there was a time where Tommy actually worked with the hedge funds to buy a lot of properties. They're going to learn about what, how you can get around them and find good deals, even if there's those big buyers in your market. We talk about how important it is to have a good criteria or a buy box is what Tommy calls it, and so much more. So all that and more to come. But first, let's get to today's quick, quick tip. Quick tip is simple. Listen to this whole episode because it's going to change your life. And then listen to the next episode, 551, because it's going to be a very special episode. So that's the quick tip. Passive income without the property headache? It's possible. There's a way to invest passively in real estate and get monthly income without any tenants, maintenance, or property management. The wealthy have been doing this for years. And if you're an accredited or high net worth investor, you too can collect cash flow without the headaches that come from owning rentals. How? By investing in a private real estate fund with PPR Capital Management. PPR's co-founder, Dave Van Horn, wrote the book on real estate note investing for BP. But he's not just investing in notes. Dave and his team also have an extensive background in commercial real estate. And with PPR Capital Management, they're strategically investing in both notes and commercial real estate nationwide. With over half a billion dollars in assets under management, PPR has provided individuals with a steady source of truly passive income since 2007 without ever missing a payment. Check them out at investwithppr.com. Again, if you're looking to get monthly passive income from an experienced team with a strong track record, go to investwithppr.com today. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com host. Finding rental property insurance has been a headache for the past few years. You know the feeling. You're scrambling, calling 20 different insurance agencies in a dozen different cities, struggling to protect your portfolio at the right cost. But I'm going to tell you a little secret that'll change everything. Veteran investors don't go through the everyday insurance companies. They just use NREG. NREG. That's N-R-E-I-G. 
provides insurance solely for real estate investors. They've built the largest insurance program in the country for residential tenant-occupied, vacant, and renovation properties. The best part? You can put all your properties on one insurance schedule and one monthly bill. And you can add, change, or remove properties without having to cancel one policy and purchase another. They insure properties from single-family rentals, up to 20-unit multifamily dwellings, vacation rentals, mobile homes, condos, and more. Trade catchy jingles for cash flow with insurance made for investors. Visit enric.com slash bppod to request a proposal. N-R-E-I-G dot com slash B-P-P-O-D. I think now it's time to jump into the show. Anything you want to say before we bring Tommy in? Make sure you listen all the way to the end because we get into a really good conversation about all the strategies that are available and how to pick the one that's best for where you are at this stage in your financial and your personal life, as well as how that sort of you can expect it to evolve as your wealth grows, as your family life changes, as your work position switches. Different strategies work better at different phases in life. And I think we do a pretty good job of explaining, painting a picture of what that can look like as someone's career progresses. That's true, man. It's true. So that said, let's bring him in. All right, Tommy, welcome to the Bigger Pockets podcast, man. It has been many years in the making, and I'm excited for you to be the last guest that I get to interview here on the Bigger Pockets podcast. What's up, man? Well, this is the honor, and man, I am excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks. For those who don't know what I'm talking about, uh, this is my last guest interview for at least quite some time. I, we're actually promoting David to the host of the Bigger Pockets podcast. So, yeah, crazy times, but I'm excited to go out on top because you guys, Tommy is somebody that I have for years looked up to and got bits and pieces of a story. And I've never heard the whole thing. So, I'm excited to dig into that. But I know one thing about you, Tommy, and that is you love houses. Tell us about that. I adore them. Mm. They make me so happy. <laughs> like, I just, I love houses. And like, that's like an icebreaker for me all the time, especially when you're calling like, utilities and they're wanting your, your email address <laughs> you're asking them to waive like an eight thousand dollar pg and email or something like that like, <laughs> that was the old dude i'm just some guy that loves houses yeah well you literally have that on your shirt i love houses and your company's what i love houses.com or something that's one of my brands yeah and i like it well tell me this i bought i love rentals.com and then when i went to one of the go abundance events i was talking to one of the guys and so then i bought i love trailer parks.com Did you really? I, love tra- I started buying i I love everything domains. And then, and then I had to buy the heart domains that go with them, which cost me more money. That made me sad. Oh man. Before we get into your story, tell us why do you love houses? You know, that is a really good question. I've actually never had that question, (laughs) but I think the simple part of it is, is I spend a very reasonably large amount of time of my life working. And, uh, you know, you take on a percentage of your identity comes from what you do. And I've always used my personality to knock on doors and to do everything about the houses thing. And the ilovehouses.com brand just took on the fact that I just kept telling people I love houses. And I went to the domain, went to the website, and I bought it. All right. Which I paid a pretty penny for. But uh, <laughs> I just love them. They make me happy. All right. Well, let's get into your story and we'll learn more about, you know, your love affair with houses. So how did you get started in this world of real estate? What were you doing before? And then how'd you get into it? So I was knocking doors, trading and selling coupons oh. in a management training program from which I was recruited for. And I was the only person there that lasted, I think, longer than three weeks, you quickly get promoted. And I learned how to make 10 bucks a door, you know, knocking on 100 doors a day. And my brother was a banker at Wells Fargo, and his biggest client was a trust ECL guy, a foreclosure guy that would be in a hurry at all times, you know, like got to make checks, got to bounce the next auction, you know, always had something going. And it just turned out that when my 
booming career of selling coupons door to door did not pan out that he was looking for someone like myself to set appointments for him and learn the foreclosure business. So I told him I had a, a PhD from Chico state and he went to Chico state, which is like the Harvard of the West. <laughs> and she's, and his wife looks at me like you have a PhD. I don't think that's, I don't think that's like, true. I don't, I'm going to go with that's not, no, really, I'm poor hungry yeah. and desperate. Like I need to learn about real estate and I was willing to do it for free. And they picked me up and they taught me for you know, a couple of years before I went out and figured I could do everything on my own without having to learn the rest of the business. And then I just figured it out from there. All right. So what was the, what was the job? You knock on a door. Cause what they give you a list of like foreclosures and you knock on the door. Great question. It was pre foreclosures. They actually had a data system where they would buy, they would back then you hand pull the leads off microfish and you would get the trustee sale before someone else would. They would just go door knock stuff and say, trustee sale is scheduled for such and such date. Have you guys got that taken care of? And the people who said no, it was everything from probates, which, you know, owners had passed away to job loss to everything. And they had a program where they were able to keep people in the homes because they could afford to keep the homes as rentals in an appreciating market, early 2000s. So it was easy to say, hey, we can keep you in the home. And they just had this endless supply of money, it felt like. And I I didn't do anything really, but set the appointment and then maintain the relationship during the contract. You know, it's like a unlicensed real estate agent type thing going on at the time. Yeah. All right. So you started by knocking pre-foreclosures. Maybe we can set some terminology terms for those who are terminology terms. What's pre-foreclosure? How's that different than foreclosure? How's that different than REOs? Yeah, that's, that's super relative to anybody at any level. Like, you know, whether you're in Wyoming, whether you're in Texas, whether you're in California, each of these systems are governed by uh, the foreclosure process, which changes state to state. So there's a mortgage or there's a trustee sale. And in California, it's a trustee sale system, which they're delinquent. And then they send you mean letters. And then you figure out that the bank's not going to stop sending you mean letters until you pay. And if you don't pay, or the house is vacant, the mail is just going to nowhere, then they eventually set a trustee sale date. So there's a notice of default, then a trustee sale, which is like that 28-day warning that just says, here's your actual date. No more warnings. Here's your date of the auction. And then we would work within the confines of that default system. And in the mortgage states, it's done judicially. So, you know, people will go in front of a judge. The judge will say, you guys got to be out on such and such date unless you meet these terms and occupants or the owners, you know, there's a difference between the tenants and the, the laws are just different state to state. So here in California, I didn't, the volume was so high, you know, early two thousands at high late two thousands that I didn't have to go out of state until I started doing after the crash, you know, Vegas, Phoenix, all the major markets that the world had fallen apart. In. I think one misconception with for real estate investors is just the word foreclosure is sort of becoming this all encompassing word that we used to describe. Right. So can we maybe sort of divvy up the stages of the foreclosure process, which would probably be a more accurate way to describe it? Yeah. And I, I think that to go down the road you're talking about, it's really applicable for realtors to understand it. And it's really applicable for investors to understand it. And it's the lending side, the private money side. So and agents that have this dual threat. They say, Hey, my client wants to make an offer on this foreclosed property, or they know I'm a perfectly capable agent willing to take my own advice as to how I make money in real estate. And they'll go door knock. They'll send out mailers. Propertyradar.com is that like pure source of national foreclosures where people can get a general address and an acknowledgement that there's a, a distressed 
lead there of any kind, whether it would be a notice of default, a trustee sale, a judicial foreclosure notice, a, you know, I don't think that they sell the blight lists, you know, that it's maybe a code enforcement lead or other, but the word foreclosure goes super vague because an REO, which is now a bank owned property is considered a foreclosure, but the foreclosure has actually already occurred. So that word foreclosure for me in California is that notice of default time period somewhere between three and six months. And then the trustee sale month that they tag on there where they set the sale date, take it to auction, and they either give you a number and you sit there and bid with your number. In Texas, it's Super Tuesday. I think Atlanta and Georgia are a uh, they're a Super Tuesday state. In California, it's, it could happen any day. The, the volume's really low compared to some of the distressed markets. But foreclosure is a really bright, you know, very, really, really vague word right now. In the- I like that, David, you brought up that fact that like different people say foreclosure and it means different things to different people. So, David, how do you do? How- the neighbors say the word foreclosure like anything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, it's amazing which, what that word means to an investor, what it means to a, yeah. you know, an owner, uh-huh. or it means to a neighbor. I remember being a kid and my dad who had no idea how, I mean, he wasn't like an idiot, but he didn't know how real estate worked. I remember he's talking to my mom or me or somebody. And I remember him saying, yeah, it's really hard to get a good deal unless you find a foreclosure or something like that. And so I always just, I had that in the back of my head for my whole life. And then when I got into real estate sales, I realized that it is foreclosure is a process. And the way that I understand it now is like, I own a house and if I stop making the payment, there's laws in place so that the lender can't just take title this, the day after I miss my payment. Oh, my house, too bad. There's <laughs> there's things in place that give you an opportunity to to uh, catch up. And one of them is that they have to legally issue a notice of default. That's where they tell you through public forums like so that I can't come back and say, I, they never told me. Like They posted it in a newspaper. They put it in these public places that, hey, David Green has is behind on his mortgage and he has X amount of time to catch up. So or his HOA. Perfect. That's the super hot. One. This is what or I love about you, Tommy. You're giving us good details. Yeah. So HOA. When you borrow money from the bank and you sign on your deed of trust, it says in there, I have now selected Placer Title Services, you know, First American Title Services. And what they say is they're the trustee of that note. It's that specific note that's foreclosable, which was that whole B of A didn't have possession of my note. You can't foreclose on me. You know, you, you read about those 10 years ago that people are still in their homes. Like we saw one in Tennessee this week. They haven't paid in 10 years. <laughs> like they've been there. Like there's just the system's so big and the word foreclosure is so big. It just applies way differently to who you're asking about. So you get the notice of default, and then if you don't respond in time, the holder of that note now typically says, okay, we have to to sell this property to get paid back what we're owed. That's when you have the foreclosure. It goes to the courthouse steps in that area. Yep. And that's where people like you and our and our friend Aaron Amuchastegui will show up and you can buy the property there for what is owed on the note or whatever they're selling it for. But it's typically an all cash offer. You're not writing a contract like what a realtor writes that gives you contingencies. You're not getting clean title. All the things that protect buyer during the home buying process are not applicable. This is why the big boys play there. And I believe 
bigger pockets wrote the book bidding to buy that kind of details that process. If it doesn't sell on the courthouse steps, nobody buys it. Now the bank will hire a realtor to go sell it, put it on the MLS. And that property is considered REOs, meaning real estate owned because it is now on the bank's books. The bank has taken title. I say bank, it's really the lender. The lender has taken title back to that property. And now they go find the David Green team and they say, okay, sell this house. The problem is once that what we call foreclosure hits the MLS, it's no different than every other house. So even though it will say foreclosure or REO, that does not equal great deal. You're just comparing it to all the other homes. And that's where I think the misconception comes in is people are, they'll see a house on Zillow that says foreclosure, which means foreclosure process. It's going to be sold on the courthouse steps and they don't have the means or the intestinal fortitude to get into that world and try to buy it. And then they'll see it on the MLS. Like, Oh look, it's REO. This must mean a great deal. Where in 2010, it did mean that because there was a billion of them. Yeah. There was just a ton of them, right? Yeah. All my early stuff was all REOs. Like, yeah, that's all we looked for, but that gets stuck in people's heads. So now they think REO is synonymous with great deal, but now when there's not much supply, it's just like every other house. Let me ask you two a question. Foreclosures have been obviously almost non-existent since COVID, right? Because all the government shut down all the foreclosure stuff. But now that that's kind of coming to, at least we hope, coming to an end, are foreclosures coming back, Tommy? And are they coming back hard? You know, I I want to say it's still regional and it's actually product specific. So for instance, you're going to see private money stuff that comes up. Like I'm a buddy of mine lives in Colorado. They don't do a lot of second mortgages there. You know, it's a different beast. So whether it's a first mortgage going to sale or a second mortgage to sale, a private money note, what has stopped is Fannie Freddie paper. That's that at least 50% of the market is on that homeowner based, you know, the cheapest money you can get, but you have to check a hundred boxes, you know, to get a mortgage, right? And once you've checked all those boxes, those foreclosures, they're on payment plans or they're in some stage that allows them to kind of delay or postpone, really. I think what we're seeing right now, and and I would say right now still in the next one quarter to two quarters, is uh, reverse mortgages, deceased owners, private money, and non-owner occupied mortgages are going to be coming back. That's the stuff that's coming through now where someone's not paying and there's a distress that's been caused out of that. And it's hard for me to get that crystal ball out for yeah, the yeah, homeowner yeah. occupied stuff, like uh, for Fannie Freddie. So David, do you have a different opinion or are you, are you seeing it differently in your market? I think that there's a lot of people that were hoping for that. And there was a lot of gurus that were telling people that, and it isn't going to happen in my opinion. And I think what you just said, Tommy, there's payment plans in place. First off, absolutely true for anything that makes it through that. The reality is there's been so much equity created in the last couple of years when prices go this high, it won't go to foreclosure. You'll just put it on the market and someone will buy it and you will make more money even though you fell behind on your mortgage. And so that's why we're not going to see this all this inventory. It happened last time because housing prices were going down. And so you couldn't sell your house. Yeah, foreclosure was where you significantly, ended up. Significantly, yeah. 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 I'll tell you one thing that I think you're going to see in the next four quarters that is a game changer for volume that may never hit that irrationally low amount is that there's so much money available to buy these notes that before we were seeing stuff going to sale for 550,000 bucks and the opening bid was a hundred grand, you know, like they dipped, they cut bids and you would have to be there and you show up at the auction expecting the opening bid to be 550. The auction opens at a hundred K 
and you buy it. And it's this, it was a process where they were getting rid of distressed real estate. They didn't have a system for the middlemen that were going to mow the lawns and, and board up the pools and take care of the, res- you know, what I'm seeing now is people are buying these notes before. And so eventually if it goes to sale for face value, and the owner of the note takes it back, and which a lot of people associate me with my invitation homes days, is that if the note holder can afford to put that into a portfolio or they can have a platform that allows them to stabilize the asset with the, the occupant as a tenant or a new tenant, they're going to lever those right up and they'll never hit the distressed real estate world. They'll just become asset or platform owned houses. I think that that will be a big portion of what we're seeing from heavy, heavy, you know, the really big money is are people that are buying the notes and, and then if they revert, just stabilize them. They're not taking a loss on the stuff. There's still, it's like cap rate based single family, which is not a world that I fully understand yet. Sure. That makes sense, man. Obviously none of us have a crystal ball. So let's go back to the crystal ball we do have, which is our past. What did you do after this door knocking thing? How did you get into like, what's the next, what was the next phase for Tommy? Yeah. So uh, that was 2005-ish when I left, and I still had three years left to think that the amazing real estate market was how good I was. Mm-hmm. You know, like, <laughs> in reality, like I think 2008 proved I may not have known everything in the world, but I did you know three years of terms deals, and I think that that's really applicable to anybody listening to this show. Is you know buying it subject to the loans that are on there. Like you don't need to go get the debt, the credit, the whatever it is. If you only have 70,000 bucks and you know, 35 of it's going to cure the mortgage and 35 of it was going to the owner, stabilizing that as a rental and then putting into the Burr platform. Like it's this, the terms deals is where I made my volume increase of what I was buying pre 2009. Let me get this right. So you're saying you find the property that they're under, like they're, they haven't paid their mortgage. You buy that subject to, which is something we talked about recently with Pace Morby on, uh, I don't remember what episode it was. I'll see if I can find it, but you buy it subject to, so you just bring the mortgage current and now you own a rental. Is that what you're, that's what you're saying? Now you own a rental. That's it. And it's also, there's an equitable piece there. There's a value trade that you have with the homeowner. Sometimes the value you're offering is them not leaving at all or it's cash or a reduced rent or, and they get to stay in that school district in a place when we have constrained, like people would call and say, Hey, I, I don't want to move. You know, it was my mom's house or it's emotional yeah. or whatever. And they're not going to keep it. And it's really just a one-on-one, one deal at a time. win. like, how much do you want for the house? Some people have a price or we are able to come to terms and growing my portfolio on someone else's credit, which deceased borrower or not going to that level, you know, like you cure it, the note, the deed of trust says you're allowed to pay it, pay it current unless it hasn't gone to sale already, you know, and we do buy one at a time. That was pre the world falling apart. And then after the world fell apart, I was able to start buying at auction again. So it's, it's a matter of quadrant. Like, where are you right now in that process? Is there enough distress and door knocking is all quadrants at any given time, any one person in Utah or, you know, Midland, Texas, or wherever you are, there's vacant houses. There are properties, there are lists available that you're buying these things. And that was my niche was I just choose, actually I chose Thomas brothers coordinates, you know, 
Thomas old school Thomas Brothers guides? I have no idea what that is. Like I would do. Oh man. There it goes. That just tells Andatia on, on how old I am. Like the Thomas you'd get a Thomas Brothers guide and, and I would go to like all of a certain city and just look at all the houses in that city, shoot photos and keep track of them. Door knock. Just go and going where people don't want to go or don't need to go. But on the vacant houses, you can do all that by the phone. Eyes. So I love that you brought up this point and I, I want to stress this for a minute. It's like there are different parts of a market cycle and different things that work at different parts, right? So like there are strategies like subject two may work better in one market versus other. Foreclosure could work better in one versus other. Just burr might work better in one versus other. I think house hacking works good in pretty much every market, no matter what, but most strategies work Agreed. in this type of market. So just something for people to be aware of. You might watch a YouTube video or hear a podcast. I mean, we've been doing now the Bigger Pockets podcast for like, this is the, going on the 10th year, right? So the shows that we did 10 years ago was a drastically different market than we find ourselves in today. So people go back and listen yeah. to early shows and it's like, oh yeah, just buy them at foreclosure, you know, or, you know, whatever. Yeah, foreclosure. I'm like, well, right now there's no foreclosures. So now that, that might come back. So it's not a bad idea to learn that stuff which is why we're talking about it today. But yeah, just interesting that that, that, that happens. So let's talk about, so what came next? Market crashes, you start buying to get an auction. Uh, is this when the world of invitation homes comes in? Is that when it happened? Almost. I actually got to recreate. I mean, it takes a long time. It's very personal. Like that house is worth 500 grand. According to who? Yeah. You know, like it was worth 500 grand. Now you can buy it for 200. So people held on and the market was shooting up, you know, 30% a quarter sometimes or 30% a year. And, but when houses that were 300 grand, you can buy for 30K, that is where my next. So my 2009 through like 11 was just my niche was anything in California I could buy under 60 grand. I could get financing on it immediately. So I would buy four of them, five of them, six of them, and I would group them together and get cross-collateralized financing. I would just get a private money lender to give me 360000 back of the money I spent at auction. And it's just, that's the hamster wheel. Like, But there was so much distress. So I was able to build enough rentals, have enough team, and have the ability to scale that and then I was on a short list of people that would be candidates for the Invitation Homes thing as it came up, meaning Invitation Homes comes in town with a Fidelity National Title representative and says, who in your market would be a candidate to be able to lead our Invitation Homes office here? As we were, they were going to grow Tampa, Vegas, Seattle, you know, all of these markets all at the same time. So they would group us up, fly us out to New York. And then I was on a list of five people. Aaron was on that list too. Oh, really? And, uh, for other reasons that I think he's disclosed elsewhere, how it didn't work out for him. Yeah, crazy. Aaron Muchasegi, who was on the show a number of times and wrote Bidding to Buy. All right, so what is Invitation Home? So you, okay, so first of all, I want you to answer that question, but let me give a summary here. So you were door knocking for somebody. Yeah. Learning the business. Then you started buying them for yourself using creative strategies like subject two. Then you start the market crashes. You get into just buying foreclosures again. You could buy them for super cheap, like lay down burrs. Like the burrs are like $60,000 burrs, which were just this easy, easy, easy lending product. All right. So you, you buy these properties, you're building up your portfolio before we get into the invitation homes things. Like what was your portfolio like at that point? Great. I, so the best thing that I, the thing I love so much about my portfolio is, is like, I just went and did a move in this last week at one of my houses that I bought for 30 grand. I bought it for $30,300 in California. <laughs> and I pull up a three bedroom, two bath house with a one car garage. And I move in. My occupant is now paying what would be the equivalent of like, if I'm looking at my purchase price, like an 80 cap 
you know, like, because you bought it for so cheap versus what it has, you know, uh, you know, what it's renting for. But at that time, I was the highest bidder for $30,300. That means 30400 was too much. Like somebody thought that that thing is not worth more than 40 in the world. And Invitation Homes did not. They were like, if you're buying assets for 20% of their replacement costs, I'm in. And that was the Warren Buffett thing that basically said it. He basically came out and said, if I could buy 100,000 houses right now or 300,000 houses right now, I would. And then dudes who have a billion dollars are like, oh, I can do that. Like, I just need I just need some boots on the ground. And then they came into Fidelity and Fidelity came to us and we partnered up, myself, Daniel Claiborne and I. And, uh, and we partnered up on NorCal, which had two markets. The Bay Area was its own market. And Northern California was considered a market, which was anywhere I considered in our buy box. And but the Bay Area, I mean, the average man, Oakland, you know, the average age of the house is 110 years old. Dang, you know, it's a yeah. different maintenance model. It's a different purchase. It's a different appreciation. So. All right. So Invitation Homes is like this giant. Basically, would you well call them a hedge fund? Is that what they are? Yeah, they are. Yeah. So multi, I'm sure, billion dollar well backed hedge fund that we all hated. Like, I mean, we still hate, but like, we, we hated you. Like, you wouldn't partner with yep. you wouldn't partner with the enemy to buy a lot of houses. Now, I don't fault you for that, right? That's that's great. Good on you. But this is like you're the guy that was out there buying just everything representing the hedge fund you know, and what the world says everything but we were buying in our buy box <laughs> yes you know we had a very specific buy box of what we were allowed to buy and i actually i actually bought a 50 acre ranch in fairfield at auction <laughs> like as a rental <laughs> so when i flew into dallas for our national meeting they gave me like a, a cowboy hat they're yeah, like that's funny really like you couldn't just let that dude have one deal but when you go there there's this sense of like it's like you want to just, you know, you live up almost to that. We bought it for 30 cents of what was owing on it at the time. And it was, it worked out as a rental, but we have a buy box. You buy within that. And the very first day we hit, it was August 9th of 2012. And they gave me a stack of cashier's checks and they said, you got to go to auction. And we bought seven that day in Sacramento County. And my buddies are texting me. They're like, some dude just showed up here and bought <laughs> seven houses in one day. I'm like, that guy sucks. Yeah, yeah. Like, who's, who's that guy? <laughs> and then the crier is like, that's Christie's mailing address. Like, you, that's Tommy. Like, he's he's involved. Like, oh. <laughs> so basically, you were a henchman for Thanos at one point in your career. <laughs> yeah, I was a, uh, I was a, I, I was that guy, and I got I got cover of the front page on Sacramento Bee, which is by no means the New York Times. You know, pretty, but pretty I got to frame that. And now I'm on the BP podcast. Like it, it worked out. It worked out. <laughs> so sometimes how crime pays. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So how many, how many did you buy then in your time working for the hedge fund or working with the hedge fund? I did about twenty seven hundred and twenty five oh, months. Yeah. And how long? In about twenty five months or so. By the time they released me, I kind of had like a sixty day leash before I was out of my vesting. Before I had to leave. And I was only doing bulk for them then, like, which sucked because they told me to pass on houses. And now I end up like if David Green gets this fund together, he's like, hey, I'm going to buy these 50 houses. And they're just crap. They weren't in my buy box. And then I buy his whole company and bring it in under. I'm like, dang, like I could have bought all that for 50 grand. Green's going to make a killing on this deal, you know, like. All right, fine. Here's what I wanted to bring up. You mentioned the buy box. 
And this is something that I talk a lot about in various books that I've written. It's the idea of having a very clear criteria of what you want. Can you explain? Because this is something that obviously people listening to this are going, well, I'm not going to buy 2,700 houses for a hedge Absolutely, fund. Absolutely, yeah. But the concept of what you were doing applies to people buying their first house. Can you explain what is a buy box? Why is that important? And how do you even know what you want to buy? I mean, the buy box, it's the title of all the last few books you've personally written. Like, why (laughs) am I doing this deal? Like, because I only have 13K and I get a free 10% down loan from the city and I get a loan from the David Green team's mortgage company for 97%. And out of that comes, I own an asset with three units that I occupy one bedroom in. And it's like, that's my product, right? You got to figure out. Who am I? Like, I can flip three houses at once. I can flip one house at once. I don't want to flip at all. I just want to buy rentals. And when you figure out your buy box, it's going to be based off of check-in boxes. Like, when I put out 150 grand cash from the line of credit that I have, how fast can I get that back? Or I'm going to leave it there in a nine-unit building and get a commercial loan and this market is just through the roof. I expect a 10% appreciation and a 10% return on my investment. Like, I'm going to buy any property that meets that criteria. Like, it's a blended return. Are you going to get a higher blended return? So your buy box becomes, you know, like, I only want to do 120 miles. It has nothing to do with the economics around my house. I never want to drive further than two hours in order to be able to do a flip or you start to define what works for you as an investor and what your product is. And I encourage people to step a little bit out of their comfort zones and even ask them. I mean, there's like people call me up or message me after these and say, Hey, this vacant house has been in my neighborhood for so long. And what's the next step in doing this? It's like, that thing's free and clear. It's vacant and boarded up and you can get a deal like that done on terms. And that's your buy box. You can use the only 30K you have as you give them that 30,000 bucks, then you borrow against it for the rehab, or you partner up with someone and you're bringing in money into the, or you bring just the deal and someone puts up all the money. That's a lot of those middle of the night type, like you don't have to put any money into the deal type things is, hey, if you have a really great deal and you want to be a percentage owner in this deal, or you can have the boots on the ground, or you're a contractor that could just dominate, you know, like, that's one of the worlds we're struggling in right now is I don't do restorations. That's a certain product. You know, if you're going to buy a 115 year old house in downtown Sacramento, like you're going to have to go to the historical society and get the corbels approved and the type of window and the type of glass and everything approved. Like if you just figure out, I'm going to do rehabs, I'm going to do remodels. I can do additions, you know, like you're a contractor. If you have your own money and you can completely dominate at auction, you just don't understand the data side of it. You just create your buy box and it could be complete side hustle, one deal every 120 days, three times a year. And here's my ROI expectation on my money, or here's my ROI money expectation on David's money. You know, like he's borrowing it. David's here doing his job. He's got a partner. You borrow money. What can you afford? What kind of deal can you afford? And that's just really creating your box. And it sometimes it just takes a coach or it takes reaching out to someone and saying, 
here's what I think I want to do. Yeah. Well, this is why this is so helpful. Having the buy box makes like one, like you get really good at something, right? Like rather than trying to be good at everything, like, I'm not going to be good at foreclosures and these 150 year old renovations and buying farmland and doing you know new construction. Oh, and I'm going to throw in some self storage. Like you just cannot be good at all that stuff, right? Even within a niche, like I'm in mobile home parks. That's primarily what we buy. Like we only buy a certain type and condition. Like, so I call it the crystal clear criteria in my book. So basically, Basically stands for like what strategy you're going to do, like what are you focusing on, what location, right? Where, uh, what condition you want to fix your upper, you want to complete tear down, you want something that's already nice. Property type, like what is it? Like a single single family house? Do you want to buy the multi price range? Where are you buying in? Two to four hundred thousand, four to eight hundred thousand, and then finally, I like to say profitability. It basically means you should define what would make it worth you buying it, so you can work backwards to find that number. And so when you have these like six things like figured out, like this is strategy, location, condition, property type, price range and profitability, now you can get really good at that thing. And then you can become the best at thing and you can become known for that thing. And you become, you, you know how to analyze it right. You know how to bring other people. You can get the financing for it. And so, like you said, like rather than trying to do everything out there, like get it, yeah, pick your buy box, create it, go sit down with a mentor, listen to a bunch of podcasts, start defining what it is you do. And it's going to make your decision-making process so much easier too. Like when I look at a mobile home park, even though it's a pretty stupid, complicated analysis, at the end of the day, like, it's like, does it have over a hundred thousand population within 20 miles? No, we won't buy it. Like, it's just like, it makes it super easy. It's like, does that matches your money? That matches. That's, that's a different part of this is that, Hey, because of these criteria, it doesn't work. And there are people that are listening to this show right now. They're like, it doesn't work for me. Yeah. But it works for this guy's fund and the relationships of having an operator like, you know, we're right now while you you and I are on this podcast, someone on your team is trying to maximize a lead. That is their job inside of that. And I think that most of the people maybe that are watching this podcast right now is like, how does that affect me? I don't have a fund. I don't have this. But if you find that lead, I always tell people that call me like, hey, just so I can get this clear to have clarified ahead of time. Are we working on your deal? Because you just need some advice or are you working on a deal that you would like to sell to us or you would like to partner up on? You really got to clarify, you know, what it is, because if it turns out that, hey, I'm like 90% sure I want to buy this thing, but I could really use some advice as to why, you know, what are the gotchas or like, what do you think of this type of market or this type of product or whatever else it is? I just love giving advice and I want it to be as personalized as possible. And and I find that in the world of realtors that see a fixer on the market and they immediately think of a client that will fit for that product, right? Like here's the product. It's in Brandon's buy box, right? I want those realtors to be engaged enough to say, this could work for me. I'm going to use my own, by my own like research, really. Like I'm going to trust in my own you know, opinion and mentality of this is a deal. And then when those people run out of their own capital, it gets wholesaled out. It gets partnered. It gets, you know, there's joint ventures that grow out of it. But to know your buy box right now, it's this huge opportunity to know that a corner lot is the perfect ADU lot and you can add a unit and convert a garage. And that's my product. It's always occupied during construction. It's, a, you know, like the risk of downside is so low. And I'm, you know, they're an engineer by trade and they know this is my buy box. It's, I'm comfortable with it. And then at the end of it, I'm gainfully employed. I get a long-term loan on it. And I've 
I didn't have any vacancy during that. Now I have significant income. It's like getting the land for free on a deal. You just figure out what motivates you and what your buy box is and what your, you know, what your commitment to time is. You know, I'm willing to do 60 hours this year committed to this thing in order to do two more deals or one more deal. And it's just side hustle for some people. For some people, it's the next deal. It's, it's exactly how they're, they're making the leap to be self-employed. So it's super motivating to be part of other people's, you know, growth. When I first spoke with you, Tommy, and you explained, I work for Invitation Homes and I bought, was it 2,400 homes in 24 months or something like yeah. that? I remember, this doesn't happen to me very often, just like freezing with my mouth open as the little spinning wheel on a Mac was going on. Like my whole brain <laughs> was trying to recalibrate as far as how do you do due diligence on a deal like that? Like my whole model is based on find an individual property, look at the details of that property, turn those details into numbers that it would cost to fix them. And then say like, Brandon, is there profitability that I would want, whether it's cash flow appreciation, whatever the thing is that I've traveled that path many, many times. It's well-worn. And for the majority of investors, that is how we teach them because most of them are buying one house at a time. It's a plant that's need. Yes. And when you said that, I'm like, how could you do that without being reckless? Because you don't seem reckless. And I'm sure Invitation Homes is not stupid. They have people much smarter than me working for them. So there's obviously, like you kind of explain, well, there's math involved. X amount of them will be good deals. Yeah. X amount of them will be okay. And then you'll have some dogs and we have a plan to get rid of the dogs. Or can you just break down how you were able to do that much volume responsibly so we can see what nuggets we can take out of that for our own business? Yeah, and, uh, and I think it's more important is like, and I look at the, the people who are listening to the podcast now, it's like, how is that one person who brought us one of those deals, those 2,400 deals? Like we had to have a revenue source. We, I'm sorry, we had to have a lead source and the foreclosures were one of them. And the two of the guys who had recruited me were British. And when they speak and, you know, it's like, in Britain, a, a flashlight is a torch, you know, like, and he's like, is this stock in the market? And I'm like, what are you saying? I don't even understand what you're saying. You know, like, he's like, is there stock in the market? Like, can you even get product right now was the question. Like, should I put my money in Sacramento? And it came down to one deal at a time. And realtors would call us and say, hey, I want to be part of the team. And here's the, my area. Here's my, they would bring us stuff direct. All we had to do was add it to a list and start the diligence into that specific kind of deal. So we were able to take volume and have a system in place in order to be able to turn that into a yes or a no. You know, like how, how soon can we make that a yes or a no. And I love it because people that had wanted to do this all on their own, if the deal didn't work for them, there was suddenly this dude who could just buy it on gross rental multiplier. Like it rents for $1,200 a month. It's, you know, it rents for a thousand bucks a month, which is a $12,000 a year in, in gross rent. And then you divide that by what, you know, you're, you're paying for the asset or it's like, it was so simple to say, as long as it's a 10, just say yes. And then we, the Mar, the Blackstone went to the major investors and said, I can acquire a thousand houses below their replacement cost. And at one point in time in the world, replacement cost will catch up and these will be worth more than their replacement cost. It, and then during that time, I can also afford to pay a mortgage because we're going to rent them out. So it was an appreciation play. And when I saw the biggest spreadsheet in the whole wide world, which was ridiculously long, if you just scroll, I'm like, nope, 
like I'll be part of this, but no chance will this house be worth three fifty again. I'm buying it for grand. You're telling me it's going to be worth six times what it's worth today. And some dude apparently who went to a better college and has a bigger brain than me, he was right. Yeah, because today, I mean, those hedge funds just cleaned up. Like, yeah, they made a ton. I mean, they, I remember thinking back in the day too. Like, I think they're making a risky bet here. Maybe they were. But here's interesting: is is a lot of people might be thinking, oh well, we missed that. We we missed those times. No, the hedge funds are still buying. They've just maybe oh, yeah. moved out of California. Maybe I don't know. Maybe they're still and there's in California. More of them. Yeah, there's more of them. They're still buying. I mean, I know guys that are wholesaling deals. Uh, we might be bringing one of them on soon on the show. I've been talking with them. But, like, they're doing 10, 15, 20, 30 houses a month. They're wholesaling to these hedge funds still uh, in these other markets. That's buy box. It's simple. I only buy in school districts that are greater than a six. You can go to Zillow, type in any given address and find out, hey, this school district's a six or greater. And it's in a major market like our Charlotte market for invitation homes. And you bring product direct to them. These are people who are incentivized to bring on more product. They have just as much like, hey, if it fits in this buy box and we believe in this market, buy this. So that's who we are competing with. And that's why I want to be talking to Tommy about what goes on behind the scenes with Thanos. Now we've got you and we're going to interrogate you and we're going to find out what is the enemy doing? Because I, I think as we see the shortage of inventory that everyone is complaining about, there's not a connection being made that that's because a lot of these markets that have groups like Invitation Homes operating in, they are sucking those homes into their inventory before they ever make the format that you and I would see the house by going on Zillow or something else. So, But I, I encourage people to look wider. Like if you really know your buy box, I, it's like, I look at, I bought one in Somerville, Oklahoma this month and Somerville, I am so tempted to be able to just keep this thing and burr it because I bought it in, but I bought it in my IRA as a buy, fix and sell. But it turns out that it was such a good buy like that. I would do this product every single time I could. It was a $73,000 purchase of a three bedroom, two bath, 1972 built 1500 square foot home, RV storage and a pool. Nobody's building that for 70 grand ever again. I was injured, but if you know your buy box, which Burr is the most motivating part of this for me right now. I, I only flip houses to feed my rental addiction, which my rental company is called. I love rentals.com. Like, that's <laughs> cause I have problems. So I, <laughs> um, and I bought and through that process, my buy box, I, I, if you went to LinkedIn two years ago, I would say I'm a foreclosure professional. Like let's build something together. Do you want me to be part of your team? Like I want to do something that I can add value to with you guys. And I'm now a distressed real estate professional because there's no more foreclosures and distressed is as vague as it gets. You know, there's foreclosures around that just the volume's not there to dominate in that world. So it doesn't matter whether it's a redevelopment deal or a, a burr deal or other. I, as a distressed real estate investor, I can do condos. We have a cannabis play. I mean, I have, it doesn't matter what it is. If it comes through the distressed world and it touches my desk, I underwrite it, you know, with or without the extra zero. $100,000 house or a million dollar deal. A clarification from my opinion. I'm curious if you agree with me, both of you too. So when a hedge fund has their buy box, like when you were working for them or even, even honestly, the three of us, if we have a buy box or we're like, this is what it is, almost like 1% rule. If the thing's going to rent for 1% of whatever you can get it for, buy it, right? Let's just say that's the, a, a rule of thumb. Here's always been my argument. If you're a hedge fund buying 2,700 homes in 25 months, you can afford to 
10% of them lose money on. Not that they did, but you could afford to do that because you're a hedge fund. If you're a new investor trying to buy your very first deal and you've been saving up 30 grand for the last eight years at your job, I don't believe you can afford to make that like rule of thumb risk of just like, oh yeah, rule of thumb works out. I'm just going to buy it. Like I hear a lot of advice to people like buy on the 1% rule or buy on the 2% rule. And I'm like, in the beginning, I think you need to actually do the work to underwrite those deals. You guys agree? It is. A, it's a matter of, it's just like a, nor, a normal mortgage. Can you check 10 boxes in a row? Because if you can, you get the best mortgage. But if you can only do seven of those, what kind of mortgage do you get? You know, like if you know what boxes it is that you're checking, it takes something out of being a gamble to making it an investment. You know, like it's a, a gamble is the difference of saying like, I feel very confident that when I do this deal, all 10 of these vacant units are going to rent for $900 each when the rest of the market says it's 600, you know, like I think the market's going to be 50%, you know, over you're trying to gamble on the, 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 what it looks like inside or other. But if you've walked all 10 doors and you know what the rehab is and you know what the stabilization costs are, and you can check all these boxes. It's an investment. Yes. And they can afford yes. to lose their three, three, you know, their thirty thousand. But is it likely that when you're buying something for eighty bucks a foot and you have re, you know, significant market demand for rents and there's a massive shortage of places that are worth living in? You know, a lot of these I think there's a major risk in the market with the age of these homes and the inability to rehabilitate them to the standards that's going to make them last another 50 years or last another hundred years. So it's just less of a risk. It's, it just becomes, I checked all these boxes. It totally fits in my buy box. If it's on a sinkhole, you didn't see that coming, you know, but if it is, if it's any, you know, any given thing. So yeah, it makes sense. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Want to dive deep into commercial real estate, entrepreneurship, leadership, and the economy? Tune into the Walker webcast hosted by the CEO of Walker & Dunlop, one of the largest commercial real estate finance and advisory services firms in the nation. As an unparalleled leader in commercial real estate, CEO Willie Walker frequently appears as an expert on major platforms like CNBC and the New York Times. He's even been on the Bigger Pockets podcast network too. On the Walker webcast, you'll hear from guests like A-Rod, renowned economist Dr. Peter Linneman, and experts from Walker and Dunlop's capital markets, research, and investment sales groups. So fire up the Walker webcast on your favorite podcast app or join live on Wednesdays to see Willie interact with his guests. Plus, you can always catch the replay on demand afterward. Stay ahead of the curve with insights for life from the Walker webcast.
Learn more and subscribe to the Walker webcast at walkerdunlop.com slash pockets. And be sure to follow Walker and Dunlop on all your favorite social media channels too. That's walkerdunlop.com slash pockets. Every lender loves to talk about how easy it is to get a mortgage. Then when it's time to fund your next deal, they ask for your full financials, your blood type, your mother's famous spaghetti recipe, and a map to the fountain of youth. Sound familiar? You got all that handy, right? Why not switch to a lender who actually makes qualifying for a loan easy? A lender like Host Financial. Host Financial takes the tedious tax returns, endless W-2s, and time-consuming financial requests out of the picture. Their light dock and common sense underwriting guidelines mean frictionless transactions every time. You'll even be able to use the actual or projected income of the short-term or long-term rental you're looking to purchase or pull equity out of. That's what lending built for investors looks like. So take the next step and grow your portfolio faster. Visit hostfinancial.com to request a quote in as fast as 60 seconds, which is faster than this ad. If not, it's pretty close. That's host, H-O-S-T, financial.com. Again, that's host, H-O-S-T, financial.com. Tommy, what's your advice for how the layperson, the average investor, the I got a W-2 job, I want to buy enough real estate to get out of that job. I don't need to be the next uh, Grant Cardone, but I need to get some properties. And it's really freaking hard right now. What's your advice for how they compete against these hedge funds? I actually don't see the hedge funds as being a competitor. That's the biggest part of the advice there. I, they're buying and their buy box is so tight. Like I bought, I left, I mean, I've been out of that deal now for seven years this year, like, and I've only sold them three houses. And if you live in Charlotte, if you live in Vegas or some of these markets that they really see the appreciation in Phoenix is a great one. You could still sell them a ton of product. And I look at it as, you know, it's a value to hope it works. Like you hear stories about how people sold stuff to Zillow and they took it, you know, and of course there's, you know, later on they end up selling the whole portfolio elsewhere. Like the one person, one deal at a time is competitive if you're competing on their buy box, but they're not buying ranch homes and they're not buying multiple APN stuff like duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes, all that fanny product. And that really works for someone who only has 30 that's going to do a house hacking deal. You're getting the cheapest money ever. Most of the time, you know, depending on how they're buying it on a product that cannot be replaced for its same cost. And your rents are significantly higher than what your mortgages are. Like if you know your product, I don't think that the the hedge fund model right now is a competitor. So in other words, yeah, like you said, to summarize, find out what they're buying and just buy something different, right? Because they're very tight buy box and then get rid of Or if you're going to go in their buy box and sell to them and make a quick profit and go dump into something that's not in their buy box. Yeah. So those people who are really struggling with that right now. Yeah. I I love that idea. What's a a little bit unique, like unique niche that not every hedge fund in your market's going for, and then just get really good at that thing. Or like you said, we love the ranch product. Like I think about it right now as everyone wants their own little space, you know, the bigger pieces, the dirt, the redevelopment of a property, you know, and adding units, the just buy and fixing and flip the stuff that has one acre or more, like these large lot flips are super motivating to, you know, young families or, or other. It's like this, I just want my own little bit of space. And that's you, what I'm looking to buy right now. Yeah, Just give your GR. And like, I tell people, like, just tell me what you're looking for. I'm not an agent. I'm not a broker. I can supplement your professionals that are searching. And I'll just tell you what's coming through the distressed world. Like, and I find these deals that come through that I can't make work. I just, it's like, they're not going to take 
$590 for this thing when it's probably worth $700 on MLS today. You know, and you know, but for someone that's, that you know that's looking for it, it totally works. And that's that wholesale mentality. Like, if it doesn't work for me, like the first checkbox is, is can I make money on this? Like, can I flip this? I have 40 hours a week commitment as a civil engineer, but I also have great income. And, I have, and here's the, here's my ROI expectations. And they're just people who are gainfully employed that feel stuck or other that this is genuinely that easy. Like it's just that easy to be able to do deals. You know, you bring up a really good point. Then I want to move back to your story, but I love this idea of like, if you have your buy box and a deal comes across your plate, cause you're just doing marketing and you're out there in the market and it doesn't work for you. It doesn't mean it's a bad deal. It just means it's a bad deal for you. So if you can flip that to somebody else, great. Uh, it's one thing like I had, you know, I opened our capital the last couple of years. We buy a lot of a very type of mobile home park. I think we wholesaled one ever, but I look back and I'm like, that was a huge missed opportunity. I could have probably made millions over the past few years for all the leads that came in and that we just threw away. We just said, nope, doesn't fit our buy box. We're not going to touch it. Uh, and so, yeah, going forward, we're going to get a lot more heavily into, well, it's a little too small for us. You know, we, we don't buy anything under a hundred lots. So, Hey, this one's a 75 lot who wants it. And then like, if I can make 50 or hundred grand, like shoot, why not? Like yeah, every single time. And that's that win. And I think going back to David's question really was, how does that work for me? It's like, I, we're planting seeds. You don't get to harvest until you've planted, you know, like I bought another business this year and I, I levered up on properties that I only owed like 30 grand on, you know, like if you've planted that seed and it matured its way through and you can lever that, or you can roll it. I'm a good friend of mine has like four of his properties are at like 30% loan to value. But what if a deal comes through right now and you got to cut a check? Are you lined up with a regional lender that could give you a line of credit and you could cut that check immediately? Like what I love hearing about David telling him like some of the deals he does, like sometimes he's just the credit guarantee or like even talking with green about stuff he's got going in Indiana or whatever. You're like, you can still get a fourplex for that amount. Like, you know, like, and people call green with that. Cause they know that's his buy box or here's a city. I've done a ton of deals in. Like I got flips going in five states right now and maybe 10 California counties. We flip 30 houses at a time. Does that mean I've touched them all? Nope. I don't even, I mean, some of them, I know the street address, street name, but not the house number or, and some of my rentals, I've never even been in them, you know? So it doesn't, it doesn't have to be this emotional connection to your rental, which I love mine. They make me happy, but it is your first planting that seed and you can't compare it to, Oh, if I, if I would have done it two years ago, yeah. Well, the best time to plant a tree was 10 years ago. And the second best time is right now. There you go. That's one of my favorite quotes. So before we move on, that is what I want everyone to hear is I keep saying this because it's that important. The people who bought these houses five years ago, they were like, Oh, they crushed it. I wish I could go back five years. Nobody was saying five years ago, it's a guarantee. They're going to crush it. Many people were saying, this is stupid. You're paying way too much. Blah, blah, blah. I don't know a human being that ever bought a property unless they got some like significantly under the appraised value, like throw those out. Everybody thought they paid too much. Everybody thought the market was going to turn. It never goes away. And I don't know anyone that bought a property 10 years ago that isn't like, man, I'm glad I did that, or that isn't saying that. Even people in 2005, by two, the worst time to buy ever. By 2015, they were making a lot of money, and they had made a lot of money. So I just want to encourage everyone who's listening, the emotions you're feeling when you are afraid are normal. We still feel them today. And don't let the neighbors or your uncle's neighbor's sister nag you out on your own deal. Like I had a lady come out 
in her SpongeBob pajamas and say, like, why did you pay $50,000 for this? Like, it's, I mean, everything in this neighborhood just keeps going down. And I'm like, she's negative on her own house that she owns next door. You yeah. know, like this, like, <laughs> there is an opinion to all of that. And if it was like a, Hey, by the way, I promise, I guarantee this is worth a hundred grand next year. Like everybody, you know, would have that. And it wouldn't matter whether it's in a major job market or whether you cannot just get, you can't get supplies in Alaska. There's this natural floor in Maui. Like how much does it cost to build just one house in Maui? You know, so. All right. So you learned a whole bunch working for Thanos. You became an evil genius. And then your conscience hit you and you decided, I'm going to become a good guy. I'm going to love houses instead of take them all and sell them to it. I'm being super hyperbolic right now. But you got into buying for yourself. So I want to ask, how did you take that information that you gained at that time in your career and apply it to building your own wealth instead of the hedge funds? Yeah, I, I would say that I always wanted out. I didn't want to ever have 70 plus employees. I actually have great relationships with some of them now. And if I could start my own gig again, I would poach talent like a mofo. Like I know if somebody turned on the pain again, I could press go and our volume would be great. But my daughter was due October 15th in 2014. And our COO, she came in and she's like, When's your daughter do? I said, October 15th. She said, okay, I'm exiting you on the 17th. And I'm like, okay. Like I knew I got to keep my stock. I get out. I get to go back to what I love, which is one deal at a time. You just don't get this, you know, billion dollar fund ever, uh, you know, buying shit on real estate. Like, it's like, you don't buy it. Like it's, you planted a bunch of seeds, one deal at a time. I just loved making the deal. I love going back. And that's what I was really looking forward to. And I came back here and, I just got back in trustee seals. All right. So what are you buying over the last seven years or whatever it's been since leaving there? What are you buying? How much have you bought? Uh, and uh, what's your current buy box like? Well, my, the cycle talk we were talking about before is real. Our cycle is different than Springfield, Missouri. That's different than Dallas, you know, but what David was talking about is there's just a supply constraint of product that's out there. And I think that's national. So the stuff I'm keeping, I still love irrationally low priced houses. I'm not making a ton of money buying $30,000 houses in Arkansas, but I buy them. You know, I buy condos. We have a trailer park that we bought at sale. My preference right now is with all the overhead that I do, I'll continue to flip however many houses are necessary to feed my rental addiction. And I want to buy, stabilize, and hold stuff while debt is low, replacement costs are irrationally high, and the rents are high. It's just a, it's a trifecta of... It's a three, two, you know, like in my world right here in NorCal, if it's a four, two single story, reasonably newish on a court with a three car garage in the right school district, right? Then you start taking those away. Okay. Well, it's not in the right school district. Well, it has a two car garage. It has no garage. You know, you start taking stuff away. Can I still get my money back out and get back on the wheel and find the next transaction? That's the, I love the stabilized ones. It's one deal at a time still for me. I mean, every deal we work on is fully independent. It's just a flip. You know, what I love about what you're saying is you are focusing on, I don't want to just make it as simple as the positive, but things like 
I can build it or I can buy it for less than what it would cost to replace it. It will pay for itself. I can borrow the majority of the money from somebody else at the lowest debt ever. Those are sort of like macro concepts, right? As opposed to, I don't want to buy a house because the fence might fall over, which is a micro concept that we all kind of get tripped up on, right? Yes, there you go. Toilets are the perfect example of a micro concept that stop people from taking action. And I think you had that unique perspective because you operated in that world where you had to buy 24 houses in 24 months and you could not focus on those little details. But if you look at real estate from a macro perspective, it always ends up winning. Like, look at what Brandon's doing. He's another guy like, like you that amazes me where they bought $300 million of real estate. Brandon could never tell me what's happening on lot number 68 of the mobile home park in this area at any given. He does not know. He probably will never know, but the fund is crushing it because they have the fundamentals in place. And so that's what I love about the mindset that you two are bringing is it helps you override that fear of the what if, what if the toilet clogs, what if the tenant doesn't pay their rent on time or something like that. Instead, you're focusing on these big factors that can't change quickly. Yeah. And it is a, uh, Brandon also hit on the fact that, oh, I can make 20,000 bucks, you know, just moving this lead over. Like, uh, I mean, inside of the brokerage, I'm sure you're like, Hey, I can't do a lead in Modesto for you. I'm not going to show property for you in Modesto, but you, you trade that over every lead that comes through offers value to somebody else in some different way. And you want that to come back. You know, it's like I have specific loan officers and the goal is not, can I get $500? It's, will you call them back? Will you act like, you know, their tails on fire and you're the only water to put this thing out until it's closed? You know, like, can I trust you to do your part in this referral work? And then people reach out and they grow their one deal, one seed you're planting at a time, one at a time, like, and that's it. And you build your portfolio that way. It's one fourplex at a time because you're never going to have four units at a time vacant, or it's one single family in a certain market where, you know, you have a contractor you can trust, or, you know, you have the agent who has, you know, genuinely looked closely at this deal and a property, I mean, a property inspection report that you can rely on and you just get one deal at a time done. So Tommy, when you're looking at a deal or creating a possible strategy, you're at the beginning stages of whatever your endeavor is. I have my own criteria for like, there's all these different ways that real estate can make you money. I have a priority that I put those in based on my personal position in life. So for instance, cash flow is not as important to me at this stage in my life because I'm still working and making money, right? But headache is. I don't want to buy in a D-class area that's going to pull my time there. Can you share with us how you prioritize the different aspects of real estate with what you're looking for first and then second and then third and why? Yeah. And to make it relative to the people listening that are exactly like you, it's that, can I get out of management by authorizing my property manager to make any decision under five, over $500, under $500. Then they have to ask me past that. Do I even want to know about it? Right. Can I assume that the only major employer in this community is just going to stay there forever? No, you cannot assume that. Like if you understand the risks, that's like the one by one by one. Brandon said, is the MSA a hundred thousand people or more? You know, like how do I, you know, how am I, how are these people going to make money to be able to afford rent for us? I think it's easy for any single new investor, any current investor or other to turn on an advertising lead through a carrot type system and get leads that come through and just start checking some of those boxes. For me, I put it in the, in the buy, fix and sell box as often as possible. But the one that warms my heart is the burr box. Is it the right product? Is it a one bedroom, one bath on a lot 
four times its size that I could redevelop the lot. Then I don't mind losing $300 a month while I break it out into four lots. Or, you know, I can buy something in Oakland that has this, you know, a significant job market. It's a hundred year old house and play the appreciation play. Like, and you end up making $120,000 on a $60,000 down payment in two years, just because the appreciation is there. So you know, your markets that you're willing to go in. Some people personally want to touch them. And I don't really need to touch it as long as I'm paying someone that's a licensed professional to touch it or someone I can trust to be able to touch it. That's funny that you keep mentioning Oakland with licensed professionals in 2021. At one point, the David Green team was responsible for representing the buyer on 25% of the houses that were selling <laughs> in the Oakland. We were, we were buying like all the best inventory and helping a lot of house hackers. And so that's such a good point is our clients didn't have to worry about hardly anything because every question they had, we'd already knew it. We already did it. We understood that buy box very, very well. We knew these are the neighborhoods to avoid. These are the type of houses to avoid. And I think that's a great point when you're trying to scale is you need to be looking for how do I get something off my plate? How do I get the property manager doing that? How do I get my agent doing you that? You just don't have to do it all. There's, and I look at the people, I mean, I get jealous of the people who are gainfully employed. Like I pay myself money and I, and I go have to tell the truth. Like, oh, I'm a manager of what? Of a company that I own. You know, like, ah, oh, well, shoot, you pay yourself. You know, it's like I go out of the, of the normal loan box, you know, like, can you stay within that? So if you're dual income working professional in Sacramento and you're buying homes in a Lawson lot in Oklahoma, or, you know, you're buying homes wherever you're buying, you could buy turnkey product. There are people on Craigslist advertising turnkey product and they'll give you a warranty. You use their property management company and you're putting 30% down and it's tax strategy from that point forward. There's just so many benefits to just getting out of your own comfort zone and getting over that. Like really the toilet thing, like how often, I mean, is that really the problem there? So. Well, let's get into a few specifics here of where you're at today. So how many, I, I got a list of like five questions there. First one, how many flips roughly, or how many, how many, yeah, how many flips are you doing a year right now at this point, like on average? I would say 2020 really slowed us down. And, you know, the type of product we were buying, uh, that actually paused us into 2021. But what it did change is it changed the selling season. Before you're like, oh, well, from Christmas until the end of January, no one really goes out and sees these houses or whatever. So we can sell anything, you know, year round now. And I would say that we're probably only getting out of three a month now. You know, so we'll probably flip 35 to 40 houses this year. <laughs> I love how that's like a pause. <laughs> well, I was like the doing... average person listening was thinking like you did like one last year. No, like, I did. No, uh, we yeah, did yeah. in 2010, we did 200 flips. You know, and oh, it just wow. went down. And it's sure I could do fifty, I could do sixty, but they're gonna be thin margin deals, which become a bit more of that gamble. Is this an investment or is it more of a gamble? Like, do I think the market's gonna be just finish in March? Well, I'm buying flips that prove I can't get out of these things in at least 90 days. So, but I have probably 20 flips on the books right now. For anyone wondering, Tommy is not saying the S word and we're editing it to be ish. He just says ish at the end of everything. Yeah. It's sort of his style ish. <laughs> Tommy, on those, those flips you're doing, are you guys paying the full capital gains on those? Or do you have some form of tax strategy that is helping you save money on that? And if it's a matter of whether you're licensed, you know, professional or not, um, the tax strategy I do... It's a little bit more of like an equity protection strategy. It's like, you know, I don't really flip houses in my rental company. 
you know, like it's unnecessary to have people, you know, if you're building up this equity egg, you know, it's like inside of our rental company, whether it's an LLC or an S corp or other, you're a product of the market. It's a 90 day turn. That's the efficiency. And that's what I think people really want to know is, can I make a 10% net margin in 90 days and do that four times a year? And I'll get a 40% ROI. And of course I'm paying tax on that. You know, I'm also paying staff on that and interest on that. And there's, so it, what's the net to me at the end of the day? And most of that stuff I can't get around. It's just short-term capital gains or it's realized as, per, as individual income personally. Okay. So I'm curious if you set up your flip company underneath your rental company or maybe vice versa, could you take your flip income, pay it into your rental company and then use the depreciation from that rental company to offset the the money? I think from the standpoint of at the end of the day, I'm the taxpayer and it's coming up, you know, or down. It's whether you have retained earnings inside of that company that you're either working against that, you know, the timing of the year versus, you know, when you're closing out your fiscal years. In the end, it all rolls up as ordinary income. And there are and you can offset your ordinary income by purchasing real estate in your own name and using accelerated appreciation. You can. And that's the, the tax strategy is is that huge like cost segregation stuff that you're looking yes. at. So I, I did a lot of that this year. And if people want to know more about it, message me and I can share. And that goes for you too, Tommy, if you want. My hindrance there, my concern for people to really educate themselves on it a little bit is make sure that they understand how it's affecting their personal lending and the lending inside their entities. Because they'll put back depreciation. Lenders will take out the depreciation or they'll put the, you know, the, the depreciation back in when they're taking that into account. And that's what makes the money go, you know, the world go around. Oh, you're so right. What you're describing is that if you show a loss on everything, you can't get a loan. It hurts you more than it helped you, right? Like our boy, Brian. Brian, I was BSing with him buying a house. Like he is like, you know, like buying a house and you can show more than what you're going to borrow in like a private account, but they won't loan you money unless you can show you have this whole W-2 and you have this. Like you check all these boxes for that kind of lender. That's one of the nice perks of me having my own mortgage company is we can find the programs that work around that. We can help other people. But I love that you're pointing out that fact that it's not always a win to avoid all taxes. Like, Hey, I, good news. I will steer you around that problem prior. You know, like you, you get the right education about it and then you pull the trigger. There you go. And you build backwards. Okay. Thank you, Brandon. I will allow you to continue with your line of questioning of the witness. All right. <laughs> Numbers of rental units. Like what are you buying in terms of rentals right now? I know you said you got to, I mean, you're buying a lot of different types of stuff, but what's that look like in terms of rentals or burrs? I did slow down the rental purchasing here and near the end of the year. The burrs, just for purposes of us sharing knowledge, I'm having trouble with people doing a 90 day burr you know, a seasoned burr where like I've owned it for a minimum of a period of time because I can turn them so much faster. I bought one in Sacramento this last quarter that was a four, two single story. You know, it's just the perfect rental product and the rents are so high, but I have to wait now until I think I can technically close on December 18th is my sixth month or something like that. So if you know, your lending partner says about the, the burr stabilization. It changes what you can buy and how long you can hold it for. I I encourage people to understand, here's my $100,000 at the end of the year. How much is this going to be worth? And if that's simply, I'm lending money to a guy I trust with it. And I made 10 grand That's 10% interest. I got a 10% ROI way beat the market. So I'm probably growing. I mean, my goals right now are pretty reasonable. Like I want to grow by another 10 to 12 rentals a year. 
because I love rentals. They make me happy. Yeah, they are fun, man. So what's your current portfolio look like in terms of like, you're not necessarily dollar amount to the penny, but like, what does uh, Tommy Christie got right now? Yeah, like I take pride in some of the fun ones, you know, like the terms deals or deals you just like, I cannot believe I got this deal, you know, like, and a lot of people count doors or they count properties or, or you know, in the end, David and I were just talking, you talk this thing through, like, I want the horizontal income. I'm just not relying on it now as I'm still making money in my vertical, right? So I'm willing to take on a deal that's losing money every month that has a significant equity position that I can buy. So like I lose, I have rentals that bring in $300 a month in California. Like their entire, I lose $600 a month owning this thing, you know? So it's like, I probably have 50 properties. I probably have 20 properties in my IRA that I don't have any debt on. And I, cause I just, I, you put a vehicle together and that thing just grows. You can flip inside of it with the right vehicle. I just love that you're saying that it's good for people to hear. It doesn't mean if you're someone who is living paycheck to paycheck, that that is a good idea for you. And I'm about to use a sports analogy, which I'm committed in 2022 to using less everybody. We've heard your feedback, <laughs> so I won't use too many. But if, if you're a really good team and you don't need a player at any position, you can draft a young person out of college and develop them for a couple years so that when you need them, they're ready. And that's what Tommy is describing. If you're a terrible team and you just need someone who can contribute, you got to go for a person you can plug in and play right away. At different stages in your investing career, different strategies work. I don't need cash flow right now it was actually uh remember the bald guy that used to be on the bigger pockets forums was it jeff brown jeff I think brown it was. yeah yeah right he had a conversation with me like 10 years ago or eight years ago it was really insightful he just said david you're, you're working you're working a lot of overtime why do you need cash flow you have plenty of cash you need to plan for retirement when you won't have cash flow when you're not working anymore and it just a light bulb went off and now there's absolutely deals you can get a $500,000 property for $400,000 that will be worth 10% more every single year in one of these markets. If you're losing two or $300 a month on that, but you're gaining 50 grand a year in equity and you don't need the cash flow, that's not a bad buy. And people have been hearing for so long, cash flow is the only reason to buy. Great point. I don't want people to miss this that you just made. If you're losing, first of all, uh, obviously you have to be able to afford that. I'm more not saying go buy deals that lose money. But if you were losing two or three hundred dollars a month on a million dollar property, that is very different than losing two or three hundred dollars a month on a hundred thousand dollar property, right? Because the appreciation on the, a more expensive property is going to be ten times what it's going to be on the little one, right? But it exposes a niche here. Is this? Occupied homes where tenants have another twelve months on their lease, and you can't get these tenants out. That stuff is trading and you get, especially it's your primary residence and you know, you're taking advantage of it and you don't have to move out of your house for six months and you're buying something on the market for a 10% discount that in the end you get to move into that thing at its, at its 13th month, but you're losing some money on its, its rent. But you know, you got to take into account depreciation. You got to take into account the amortization too, as you're paying that. It's why you need to understand that as an investor, you're a business owner. Because there's different buckets you make money in business. The appreciation is a bucket. The loan pay down is a bucket. The cash flow is one bucket, but it's not the, just like if you're a business owner, you have accounts receivable, accounts payable. You have deals that you're working on in the future, but you have money that you have to spend right now to prepare for that. Maybe your, your salaries are really high as you're training people so that they can make more money later. Cash flow is one 
important area in a business. If you run out of cash, the whole business can die. Just like if your body runs out of blood, it's going to die. But it's not the only reason the body exists. It's not the only reason real estate exists is just for cash flow. And that's all we're trying to talk about is Tommy's set up here where you can sort of, you're in a luxurious position where you can make long-term decisions that might lose a little bit of cash flow short-term, but are they going to be bleeding you dry in 10 years, in 15 years? No, they're going to be crushing it like my rents in california have more than doubled in the eight years that i've bought here right and so those are some of my best cash flowing properties but when i bought them they were some of the worst yeah and there's a pretty you know there you also have to have the right guidance in that too because you can't go bumping rents over certain amounts of percentage in california and in other states it's completely different but you can bank on the fact that at one point in time when someone moves out or you can get a you know you do an owner carry deal to someone or you do a lease option or other there's so many creative ways like we're looking at buying a note right now against like 17 houses in the Midwest. And it doesn't mean I get to own those houses at all. It just means that there's some kind of income protection there. There's equity protection there. And then there's either there's a delinquent borrower or a willing borrower to pay. It's just a distressed asset. You know, I look at anything that people are coming through. And so which states do you own a property in now? My favorite states, if I could continue to buy, are the international states. Like I love like uh, Orlando, Florida. Like I love Florida in general right now and buy block houses in Florida, by the way. <laughs> That's different. Like every strategic, there's strategic advice. Well, what do you mean by block? You're talking about yeah, cement? cement blocks, stick built homes versus block homes. Like there's just little... Like the hurricanes or what? Uh, yeah, the storms and how actually it's, it's just the weather and how they age, you know, for block homes. There's a lot of rain and rain affects wood more than it It very much does, yeah. The blocks, right? Yeah, I've learned that lesson too. <laughs> I love Oklahoma. We're doing Tennessee right now, which has just significant uh, population growth. I love Tennessee. We're doing Arkansas because it came through the auction and I liked the price. We, we chose a product there. It was like 1990 or newer, under 20K. You know, like you could just make your buy box there and the stuff was working. So I bought three in Arkansas too. Crazy, man. Hey, uh, last question before we move on to the famous four. How are you finding deals today? What's your primary lead sources? My primary lead source is people, relationships, and wholesalers. Like, you know, like there are times when I was out, I got a a plane in Memphis and those we buy houses signs and the people that are marketing stuff on, like you just tell them what your product is and what your buy box is. Brokers have on market and off market deals. If you specifically, especially commercial brokers, if you specifically know what it is you're looking for, like, Hey, any multifamily deal with a minimum of, you know, 20 units, preferably something I can do a hundred units or more on, they know what's available. That's it. I, I find it's coming right now for people. We do some advertising, but relationships and and people reaching out just offering us stuff is really the greatest source of we're qualifying right now awesome man well this has been a lot of fun man it was cool hearing your story uh you got a lot of wisdom a lot of knowledge over the years but we're not quite done yet so let's move to the last segment of the show it's time for our famous four the famous four is a part of the show where we ask the same four questions every week, 550 episodes in a row. Actually, I don't think we did it for the first few, but whatever. We added it in at some point. So these questions you've heard before, but we're going to throw much anyway. Number one, Tommy, do you have a favorite all-time or current favorite real estate-related book? I think it's called 52 Homes in 52 Weeks because it was a mindset change for me. Was that it's really easier than you think it is to buy. I think it may be. Like buy one deal. Yeah. Dol- yeah. Dol- Dolph DeRuz. Yeah. 52 homes. Yeah. Two and it's like this, 
it was a mentality change for me. Like I can't tell you that chapter seven was the best chapter ever and changed my life, but I can tell you it was that if I could do that for two years, I got 104 doors. You know, like that was that if you have the funds behind you to do it, or if you have the rehab to be able to turn those things over, like it's really not that difficult. Like I'm not doing anything significantly different than the rest of the world's doing. It's it's doable. Awesome, man. Uh, you know, I don't know if I'd say that's true, Tommy. There's not a whole lot of people doing what you're doing out there in the real estate space. Maybe because they don't all have the love for homes that you do. That's it. And but people who are doing four deals, they can do eight. And people who are doing eight deals can do 16 in a year. You know, like it's like talking to Brandon twice. <laughs> you look like me, but you sound like Brandon. <laughs> all right. What is your favorite business book? Man, that is a great question, too. So I'm on the struggle bus with systems right now. And I'm into uh, trying to kind of get our EOS stuff, you know, positioned into each, each one of these companies. And I just, I'm halfway through and I'm actually really enjoying what's the integrator versus the rocket, rocket fuel. fuel. Yeah. Rocket fuel is the sequel or whatever to traction. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Really Start with traction into rocket fuel and just trying to get, I'm trying to get myself spread appropriately into the parts of the business that I really enjoy the most. So that's really got my, my mind frame change. We just had Gino Wickman on the podcast. It hasn't come out by the time we're recording this, but by the time this airs, it'll be have been released. So I don't know. Look back a few episodes. Gino Wickman, the author of Rocket Fuel, we had on. So good stuff, man. Yeah, that book was uh that both traction and that were a game changer for me. So yeah, cool, man. All right. Well, next question. Next question. What are some of your hobbies? You know, I actually, uh, you and I, all, all of us are all part of GoBundance, and that gets me the only chance. I think after I had my son, my firstborn, I didn't get to snowboard for four years. Like he was five before I hit the hill. That's my so easy to kind of get out, get in the hills and get lost on the snow. It's really hard to hold a phone. And I really feel like the detach, the further I able, I can get detached from anything electronic. It really helps me kind of get lost for a while. And my oldest is now 13 and him and I did the top of Yosemite. So it's, if I could get as vague as possible with it, it's, getting out of my cute little cubicle. It's like getting out of my own way and just getting out, you know, outdoors. But for the most part, it's snowboarding and going to Costco. Cause I feel like that's why I just dominate. You're the Costco <laughs> dominator. <laughs> Can they make that into a sport? Like there used to be a TV show. What was that called where they would run into a grocery, like a different store thing and they'd have to pick items. I know our listeners are know what I'm talking about. like shop till you drop or something like that. Supermarket sweep. Yeah. Supermarket sweep. And they'd have to go fill a cart up with the most expensive items. Like, are you saying and that is a bucket list item right there? I am adding on at the end of this. I have random bucket list items. You've been training for that your whole life. One of my bucket list items, which I think I was BS with Nigel about what I told him was someday when I pay off my primary residence and pay off my house, Tahoe, it's like this whole, like I can check some boxes, right? I can spend some irrational money. I want to have uh, Morgan Freeman voiceover on like a two, three minute of my real estate career. Or, you know, if he's not available, I'm going to use Samuel L. Jackson, you know, or like. So I was hanging with Nigel actually at, at the airport restaurant and we talked about this and we were sitting there looking up what it costs to hire Morgan Freeman. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we were having a great, we were having a great conversation about this. Apparently it's, you can do it, but it is significantly cheaper to hire a Morgan Freeman impersonator. So I did not know that. Yeah. It, I mean, for 500 bucks, you can get a Morgan Freeman impersonator to say whatever you want. <laughs> but how much can I pay to get Dave Caliendo or was it Frank Caliendo? Frank Caliendo. Yeah. To do Morgan Freeman. 
Freeman. Is that oh, cheaper that than actually? More, that might be more expensive than even <laughs> Morgan Freeman. Oh. That's really funny. So they're making a movie about Kurt Warner and he was, you know, bagging groceries and then the Rams came and that's going to be Tommy's story. Like he was just <laughs> out here buying houses and then one day supermarket sweep had a resurgence and they found him and he became the gold medal winner. That. I'm so glad you said that. I got to add more random on my bucket list. I was like, I just want to have that did something different than anybody else in my real estate world. So good, man. All right. Well, last question for me of the day. If you had to really narrow it down, what separates successful real estate investors from all of those who fail, give up, or never get started? The separation factor, that is a really furthering the question. I would say if it really, if the question of digging into it is inside of real estate or other, before you can diversify, I think you've got to dominate one section of that. Like if you have a goal to grow your real estate team and you want to have 50 people on it, or if you really want to have 50 doors or 50 single family residences or other, it's a, there's a, what separates a lot of people who actually do it is, is taking the first step. I mean, there's random parts that too, like journaling and sharing it with people. Like, are you able to tell someone what your goals are? I mean, are you really aimed at it to be able to accomplish those goals? And what I found was when Miracle Morning became kind of a game changer for me was I needed to accomplish more in the morning with Miracle Morning. And it what without setting aside my faith, you know, time and things like that, that I needed to have this connection and losing connection to my family in order to dominate in real estate or it's like the better my business did like where where did i go with my personal health or other so it's it's just the balance and understanding that your goals are very personal like if you really genuinely feel like you can't live life without a hundred thousand dollars personal cash flow like you might be living above your means or you might be just you know like you know misguided on you know really what you're what's separating you from the rest so that's a great question. I mean, I think that it really does start, though, with someone who actually makes the first step that says, hey, I hate to bug you with this, but I, you know, you seem like someone I can ask about this this transaction, or this deal or this goal I have. And, and going surface, don't stay surface level, like really digging in and making it reasonable, making it personal. So no, man, no, it's great. It's perfect. It's really good stuff, man. This has been a great show. Thank you for coming on today. And uh, I'll let David kind of ask the last question. and Get us out of here. Our last question, where can people find out more about you? Go to ilovehouses.com. That's pretty easy. And in the super cute little background here, that thing, I bought that phone number, 916 buy sell. If someone you know gives me a buzz, email is probably super easy on reach out. You know, just Tommy at ilovehouses.com. But, you know, I would love to add value to whatever people are working on. So I do encourage people in your own home markets, if you find someone in your home market to reach out to. And if you want to just talk shop or wholesale something or partner up on something joint venture wise, I'd love to talk to people about anything. So I love being on the show. I love you guys. I really appreciate you guys having me on. All right. Well, this has been a fantastic show. Brandon, anything you want to say before we get out of here? No, just that this was a great interview to uh, end my tenure at Bigger Pockets with. I don't know if ten years. I'm going to advertise that. I really appreciate that. And and two very specifically, uh, you know, give props to David. Congratulations, brother! <laughs> he called it like a promotion. Like it, it genuinely is a promotion to be able to lead something this big. And I'm in awe of what you guys have accomplished together. And I'm just looking forward to the next. You know, to seeing how how good it goes for both of you for the next chapter. Well, thanks, man. Appreciate that. Well, we got our final, the final episode of the year comes out on December 30th. That will be my last episode officially as host of the podcast. So everyone uh, go listen to that one now if you're listening to this in the future or wait until I think Sunday, I think is when it comes out or is it Thursday? I don't even know the dates, but it's coming out next episode. So episode 552 will, uh, 551 will be my last one. So go listen there. David, 
Tommy, All right. thank you guys. Love you guys. Love you too, Tommy. This is David Green for Tommy the Costco King Christie and Brandon the Legend Turner signing off. The market is changing and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom and the best investors know it's not about timing the market. It's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into the real estate investing game or take your game to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com deals and enter a few details about what and where you want to buy and bam, instantly match with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com deals. That's biggerpockets.com deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.